0: I want you to hold in your minds this morning two ideas that will come together to address our theme this morning. I can't see the... there it is. Well, the theme's not up there, but the theme is on your bulletins, Christians and Culture. But before we address that theme, I want us to think about two things, two ideas. The first idea is this. There are two ways of looking at glass. The first way is to look at it transparently. In other words, to, uh, to look through it. A second way to look at glass is to look at it reflectively. That is to look at the glass and see the reflection back when you look at it. You could say that the first way of looking at the glass, looking at the glass transparently, is as if we are looking through a window. The second way to look at glass reflexively is to say that we are looking at a mirror. Two ways of looking at glass. One, which is transparently looking through it like a window. The other, reflexively like a mirror. First one, window. Second one, mirror. You got it? Hold that in your head for a moment. Hold that in your mind. Now here's another idea that I want you to consider that is related to the first idea, but you'll see how in a moment. There was once a man a long time ago who heard a story being told to him. And the story was about a man who had done something very wrong. He had harmed someone else by taking something from that man. The man who was hearing this story was moved by this story. He immediately said to the person telling him the story, this is a terrible thing, something must be done, this terrible act cannot go unpunished. But here's what was missed by the man hearing this story. Some of you know what story I'm referring to. It was the story of David when the Nathan prophet came to him. You see, David was hearing this story about another man as if it were a window to see what someone else was doing. But when the prophet Nathan came to David, he was holding up a mirror to David and causing him to see himself in that mirror reflected. And David, you are right. Something must be done for this terrible act that you yourself have committed. There are two ways to look at a glass. Looking through it as if you are looking at a window and looking reflexively as if you are looking at a mirror. Now let's consider our theme in light of this illustration. The theme that we've been considering on Sunday mornings for at least four weeks now is the question, how should Christians live in a culture that does not know God? How do those of us who know God live faithfully in a place full of people who do not know God and in some cases might even be offended by the very idea of God? And this is a very important question. And Jesus once told his disciples, you are a city on a hill you are to show the unbelieving world your light by doing good works among them we of course hear this call and we want to do the same we want to be able to show the world our light the light that we have from jesus how we've been asking do we love and worship god in this kind of environment another way of asking this question is how do we love and worship god While living in Babylon, you know, that old city that we have been alluding to, that place where the ideas, the beliefs, the values that people live by are counter to the beliefs, values, and practices that we are supposed to live by as the people of God. And yet... There is something surprising when we consider this question, how do we live in Babylon? You see, because it's not as simple as seeing those outside who are citizens of Babylon and thinking about how we are to minister to them. There's something surprising when we think about the reality of where we are. You see, some of Babylon has come into us. We, quite often, reflect the beliefs, the values, the practices of Babylon. So how are we supposed to minister in Babylon when we are stained by Babylon, when we have become dual citizens of Babylon? It's not as simple as saying we know the truth of God and they don't, so we need to share it. Things are a little messier than that. Because the truth of God isn't a window to see the wrong of others. It is a mirror that stares back at us, too. When we look at the truth of God, yes, we see unbelieving Babylon and all of its citizens, but we also see ourselves standing there, too. The truth of God arrests us. It speaks to our need as well. And unless we truly understand this reality, we will never be able to really know how to live in an unbelieving culture. Christians who do not see themselves reflected in the mirror of Scripture can't do good in an unbelieving culture. We only do harm. Now, when we've considered this question, how to live as Christians in this unbelieving culture, We have mostly considered the advice, the guidance, the counsel of Daniel and his three friends. You remember Daniel. Daniel was taken from his homeland into the city of Babylon. He and his three friends were were taken there, and they were men who were going to do administration there, a part of the political system. And every time we viewed these individuals, we saw that the culture was opposed to their faith. And so they had to stand firm while being in exile, living in Babylon. But we're going to look, look at another example this morning. It's not the example of Daniel and his three friends. It's the example of Jonah. If Daniel and his three friends are the model students, then Jonah might be considered a delinquent. But before we get too harsh and before we criticize Jonah too much, we have to prepare ourselves Because we might find that we look a lot more like Jonah than we might have guessed. Yes, Jonah is the reluctant prophet, the shameful prophet. But I want you to listen to the story carefully as we find ourselves reflected back in the narrative. There's something going on in this story that should alarm us. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. They often come to us packaged in a way that we might expect it to come to us. And then all of a sudden, the language of the story surprises us at every turn. And I have to say something before we get into the story, because many of you know the story of Jonah. In fact, if we were to go outside right now and ask someone, hey, what do you know about Jonah, that prophet? I'm sure anyone, even if they have never stepped foot into this church, would say, Oh, that's the guy who got swallowed up by the whale, right? We know this story. But I want you to put that part of the story aside for a moment. And I want you to receive this story as if you were hearing it for the first time so that it can surprise you because what is going to take place is upside down. It's not the way things ought to be because it's what happens when those of us who are the people of God are put to shame by those who are the unbelieving world. Uh, Things look as they shouldn't appear. So I want us to consider this story. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles back to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. The book of Jonah, chapter 1. Jonah, chapter 1. If you're there already, it's after Obadiah and the minor prophets, those small books that get lost within themselves. But here the story begins in a very usual way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Let's wait there for a moment. Now, this is typical. In almost all of the prophets, the prophets, these books, they, they begin with the announcement that the word of the Lord came to the prophet. So far, so good. Everything is normal. Everything is as it should be. The word of the Lord is supposed to come to the prophet. The prophet is supposed to hear the word of the Lord. And then the prophet is supposed to go to announce the word of the Lord. This is the way things function. You see, prophets had a unique role in the life of Israel. Prophets are considered the mouthpieces of God. They're the ones who are supposed to hear the word of God, receive the word of God, and then go wherever they are supposed to tell it. So that if you heard a prophet speaking, you are essentially hearing the word of God. It is as if the Lord is speaking when that prophet speaks. So there's a criteria, of course, for the prophet. The prophet hears the word, and the prophet is only supposed to say whatever the Lord has given that prophet. So we have the message from the Lord. Verse 2, get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Again, this is not, uh, this is not strange to us. Typically, the prophet of the Lord was supposed to go and speak to the people of Israel. That, that's normal. But occasionally, it's also normal for the prophet of the Lord to have a message to those who were foreign oppressors, those who were other nations, those who were Uh, Babylon, if you will, although this is Assyria, but you get the point, right? Citizens of another nation that did not honor God. In fact, when you look at those nations, all you see is sin, uh, bloodshed. These were people who needed to hear the word of the Lord. And so the word of the Lord came to the prophet. Get up, go to Nineveh, call out against it for its wickedness. And so... Things are normal so far, even at the beginning of verse 3. The word of the Lord says to us, after this word came to Jonah, get up and call out to the city. Jonah got up. So far, so good. He got up to go as far as possible away from the presence of the Lord as he possibly could. Now things are becoming strange. Uh, Notice the way the language is there. It says the same word. He got up he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's think geographically for a moment. Jonah was ministering in the northern part of Israel. and Joppa is a place where you catch a boat in the southern part of Israel. Nineveh, the place where he is supposed to go, is just east of the place where he is. Tarshish is essentially the furthest you could go in the known world westward. So here's what Jonah is doing. The Lord Lord is telling him to go east. It's as if you were to tell me, hey, Kerwin, go over to Indiana. And so I got up, flew to California to get on a boat to go to Japan. It's the furthest possible distance from where I am supposed to go. But there's something strange about what Jonah is doing. Not only is he going as far as possible away from the presence of the Lord, but he is going away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord God, who called this prophet, we'll see later on, the creator of heaven and earth, Jonah is... Going away from the presence of the Lord. He should have known better. It's a bit absurd what he's trying to do. Jonah, it doesn't matter where you go. You can be in Israel, you can be in Nineveh, you can be in Joppa, you can be in Tarshish, you can be on the sea. You cannot leave the presence of the Lord. He should have known this. Psalm 139 says as much. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you the words of David. David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the lowest place, the depths of, 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 of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the innermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your hand shall hold me. Excuse me. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light above me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah, you should have known better. There is no place you can go to hide from the presence of the Lord. There's no place you could go, Jonah, where the Lord would not find you. And so, as you might expect, verse 4 tells us as much. But the Lord, despite Jonah's attempts to get away, uh, far away as possible from, from the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty storm on the sea, so that the, the ship threatened to break The Lord found Jonah. What a surprise. But the Lord, being all-powerful, having the whole earth as his dominion, sends a wind that causes a great storm, a storm like no one else on this boat had ever seen. And it finds Jonah. But let's think about this boat for a moment. Let's think about this ship. It wasn't that Jonah went looking for a boat. He rented the boat, and then he went on this lonely expedition to the end of the earth. No. Jonah paid a fare to go on this boat where other sailors were on this boat. And what does he do? He goes to the very bottom of the ship to stay. But look at the actions of these men, the mariners, the sailors. Verse 5 tells us the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship and into the sea to lighten it for them. You see the actions? They were afraid. They cried out to their gods. They hurled the cargo out trying everything to preserve their life. But Jonah was asleep at the bottom of the boat. It's as if the The story is going to focus on these men, their actions, their words, whatever it is that they're doing to try to survive. Meanwhile, we've lost sight of Jonah because he is somewhere sleeping in the boat. So we follow the captain who is trying everything that he can do, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't there another person on this boat? Didn't we pick up a traveler in Joppa? So he goes searching for him, and he finds him asleep. At the bottom of the boat. And he says, whoa, wake up, get up and call out to your God. Now. Maybe Jonah didn't hear it or maybe you didn't hear it at first, but I'm sure Jonah was stirred awake by these words. Did you hear the similarity? Get up and call. Probably reminded Jonah of the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Jonah, get up and call out against the city of Nineveh. And here, for the first time in what will come up again, these pagan sailors are speaking the word of the Lord to Jonah, the prophet of God. The manners the sailors say, get up and call out to your God. Maybe your God will help us in this situation. Now what's interesting is the text doesn't really tell us implicit or directly Whether Jonah got up and started praying to God, he probably didn't, because the next thing that we find is the rest of the sailors are there, and they're saying, we've got to figure out what's happening here. Something divine is taking place here, because this is a storm unlike any other storm we've ever witnessed. We are calling out to our gods, and nothing is happening. So we've got to find out what in the world is happening. Who is to blame for this terrible thing that has come upon us? Now, hold on just a moment. Here you have Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, who was supposed to be in the midst of these unbelieving people, these pagans. And you might think that this prophet might bring blessing on those who are not a part of the people of God. This is what the people of God were supposed to be, right? They were supposed to be blessings to those who were not a part of the people of God. And yet here we have The prophet of the Lord bringing curses on these people. Their lives are at stake. Their lives might end because of Jonah. And this is what these sailors are about to find out. They cast lots. Uh, That might feel uncomfortable for us. It sort of sounds like a game of chance, right? Throw some dice, pull some strings, whoever has the shortest string. But these are religious people. They believe rightfully so, that God is going to give some indication to them as to what is taking place to them. Maybe God, maybe some other God, but somehow they're going to receive divine insight. By the way, this isn't unusual for the scriptures to describe this practice. In the book of Acts, for instance, the apostles do this very thing to determine who will replace Judas as one of the apostles. And, just like then, the Lord responds. Here in the book of Jonah, the Lord responds to this endeavor, to this action. The lot falls on Jonah. The sailors look at each other. They look back at Jonah. They say, what is this thing that you have done? Who are you? Where do you come from? Why, Why have you done this terrible thing? Tell us so that we might know how this storm may cease. All the while, the storm is getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and their lives are threatened more and more. They threw over almost all of the cargo, and it didn't do anything. And now, this man is to blame. This is the second time that the word of the Lord is in the mouth of these pagan sailors. Maybe you didn't catch it. The men say, what is this thing that you have done? You'd have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to remember when the Lord said it. He said it in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned against him, and as he is coming before them and they're hiding in their shame, the Lord says, what is this that you have done? It is a question of mercy, a question of grace, a question of opportunity to humble yourself, turn to God, And receive his mercy. And now these pagan sailors are asking that very same question What is this that you have done, Jonah? Why are you hiding from God? Jonah responds, and you sort of have to chuckle at Jonah's response, because you hear the pride of his response, you hear his back straightened as he says what he says. Look at what he says in verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear, I worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Let's think about this statement. He points out that it is the Lord who is causing this to happen. How do we know that? Because he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, who is over the sea and the land. We've already thought about the absurdity of Jonah pretending that he could outrun God. Now he admits his own stupidity. God has dominion over all the earth because he made it all. He is the most high God and he has the power and authority over the sea. He knows this. But look at what he says at the beginning of the statement. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Jonah identifies himself with the people of God as if to say, look, I am okay. This is my badge of honor. But here's what you have to realize. It doesn't absolve him of his stupid, dangerous actions. It actually condemns him. You should have known better, Jonah, if you claim to know the Lord. And then to make things worse, he claims to fear the Lord, to worship God. Jonah, if you are a worshiper of God, if you you fear the Lord, then why are you running from him? Why haven't you cried out to him like these pagans are doing to their false gods? You want to know why? Because sometimes this is what religious people do. We make declarations to explain our standing before God and are completely blind to the irony of our stated beliefs. I am a member of the church. I believe in God. Then why don't you cry out to the Lord? Then why are you bringing harm to those who are not a part of the faith? Then why does your life not demonstrate your understanding of God as Lord and your desperate need for His mercy and grace? Why do you act as if you saved yourself? Because the sea continues to grow stronger and stronger with its storm. And so they say to Jonah, who has all the answers apparently now, they say to Jonah, what should we do? And Jonah turns to them and he says, take me and hurl me over the boat. Now at first, you and I might think, how noble of Jonah he wants to save these innocent men. He wants to, to, to stop bringing them harm. But is that really what he's doing? Jonah is essentially saying, kill me. Throw me over the boat so that I might die. But think about it. If these men do this, his blood is on their hands. He is bringing more calamity on them. He is making them more guilty by his action, by his desire to be thrown over the boat. And you have to ask yourself, Jonah, were there any other options available to you? Because you have done something else. And the answer is obvious, yes, you could have done what these pagans were modeling for you. They were calling out to their God. Perhaps you could have, Jonah, cried out to God. And said, Lord, help us. I have sinned against you. But please be merciful, even though you are God and I am not. But you know what that takes? It takes humility. It takes an ability to rid yourself of pride to say, I I don't want to repent of my sin. I don't want to make confession for my sin. Jonah isn't confessing here at all. He never says, this is what I have done, I have run away from the Lord. He tells them, but he is not sorry for it, right? He never confesses to the Lord to say, I have wronged you. Please show me mercy. It's unusual. Because there are two things that this passage is teaching us about the nature of God. First of all, God is powerful. He is authoritative, he owns, he commands the whole earth. This place is his. And if you wrong God, then there is a threat of death over your head. But there is something else that this passage, this whole book, is teaching us about God that makes us even more uncomfortable than the reality that God can strike us down. You know what that is? It's more frightening than an all-powerful God. It's the all-loving, merciful, forgiving God. Why is that so frightening? Because sometimes taking the punishment is easier. Sometimes it's easier to not admit that you actually need that grace. Sometimes it's easier to, to, to say, look, just knock me out. You don't have to confess your wrongdoing. You don't actually have to turn away from your sin. You don't actually have to bend your knees before this God who can pardon you and who can love you and be kind to you. You can die in your pride. Some of us are willing to die in our pride before we bow our knees to God and say, Lord, help me. I need your grace. Some of us would rather be thrown off the boat before we receive God's mercy. But there's something else about this mercy that is uncomfortable. It shames us. It forces us to come to a reality that says, I actually need this grace. I am not as good as I thought I actually was, and I don't want to make confession to this. I don't want to admit my wrongdoing because it will actually put it out there that I have done wrong. Just throw me off the boat. In either way, we have to come to reality that there is an all-powerful God who is loving and kind and merciful and gracious, and if we humble ourselves, he is willing to extend this mercy and kindness to us. But Jonah doesn't get this. You know who does get this in the story? The pagan sailors. The ones who were calling out to these false gods. They understand it. In fact, they, they are trying to preserve Jonah's life, and so they row harder and harder, hoping that they can get to dry land. But eventually they come across the first truth of this story, that God is all-powerful and you can't run away from God. He owns the land and the sea. You cannot run from him. And so they do what Jonah was supposed to do. They cry out to God. Not to their gods, but to the covenant God of Israel, to Yahweh, the Lord God. Look what they say to him. This is verse 14. O Lord, let us not perish in this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. First truth, you are all powerful. You can do whatever you want to do. But please, let not us perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. They plead for mercy. They acknowledge God's power, but they also plead for his mercy. And so they do the thing that they did not want to do. They throw Jonah over the boat. Jonah doesn't protest. He doesn't learn from their crying out to God. And immediately afterwards, the sea calms down. And these men, these men who were pagans, who were sinners, who did not know God, they feared the Lord. The, the passage says, exceedingly, greatly. It was as if you could be at the bottom of the sea and you could hear their shouts of praise to God. And they made sacrifices and vows to God. I wonder what those vows were like. Lord, I vowed to live my life for you. Maybe, I don't know. But they understood what Jonah never understood. Jonah is thrown over the boat, and for him, this is the end. He doesn't have to obey God's call. He doesn't go, have to go to those terrible people to Nineveh to, to share the, the, the warning, the, the word of the Lord to them. He doesn't have to bow down before God and ask for mercy. He can just die. <clears throat> but that's not the way the Lord works. You know the story. The Lord, being loving and kind and merciful to a man who was undeserving, who should have died in that sea, the Lord sent a large fish, a great fish, to preserve his life. Because this is the kind of God that we serve. This is the God that is revealed to us in the scriptures. Yes, this God is the creator of heaven and earth. He has dominion over the sea, over the land. He is all-powerful. He can do as he pleases. But glory be to this God, that he is also loving and kind, that he is also merciful and gracious. And to every one of us who find ourselves running from God, find ourselves pridefully sinning against God, pridefully filled with Babylon in our own hearts, living contrary to the way that God calls us to live. Thanks be to God, but he is merciful and kind, willing to extend grace to each of us. And this is remarkable. This is remarkable because the story of Jonah is not the end. You all know this, and you know where we have to go, right? Because there was someone else who was not a reluctant prophet, who gave his life not out of pride, not out of sin, but for our own sins. And he too was hidden for three days because he went down into the earth. He was buried. And like Jonah, on the third day, he came out of the ground, resurrected a new life. But this man was not Jonah. This man was the Lord God. It was Jesus who saw in us, even those of us, who have pride, who call ourselves as those who know everything we need to know about God. He died for us. He gave his own life for us. And if we humble ourselves, if we come before him and recognize that he died for each of us and offers us new life, perhaps we can begin to live in the way that these pagans lived. Sort of an unusual thing to say, right? May we live like the pagans in this story, who are able to see Yahweh as he truly is, as all-powerful and all-merciful and kind and gracious. When we get back to the question, how do we live in a culture that is unbelieving, a culture that is opposed to God? We have to recognize that the word of the Lord comes to us, too. It comes to those of us, even those of us who have been baptized, those of us who belong to the family of God, those of us who are prideful, who have allowed the beliefs, the practices, the values of Babylon to come into our own hearts, to be polluted by sin. The word of the Lord comes to us as a mirror to free us into the loving kindness of the Lord. If you want to know how to live faithfully, In an unbelieving culture, you have to recognize that we are on the other side of this mirror and we also need God's grace. Because it is from this position, not on the other side of the window, but on the other side of the mirror with those in Babylon that we can say, Look, God is all powerful, but he's also kind, merciful, and gracious. I can tell you that because I know it for myself. This word is talking about me. It's talking about my pride. It's talking about my sin. It's talking about my reluctance to serve God as I'm called to be. It's talking about us. The church who often looks more and more like the world and more and more we, 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 we disconnect from the world so as not to do good in the world and we end up doing harm to them. But when we humble ourselves before God, we say, Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, be gracious to me. Perhaps then we can begin the work of being witnesses in this unbelieving world. Witnesses in Babylon, in Nineveh, in Chicago. Let's ask for our powerful, great God to be merciful to us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word that addresses each of us. Lord, I have the desire to share this good news with others. My brothers and sisters here have a desire to share this good news with others, but we cannot do so unless we are ready to recognize that we must humble ourselves before you. That we are in need of this mercy and grace just as much anyone, just as much as anyone else is. So gracious Father, gracious God, would you be merciful to each of us? Each of us who are full of sin, each of us who are full of pride? Would you be merciful and gracious to us, and would you help us, Holy Spirit? To turn back to you and to serve you as you call us to do. And then, Lord, perhaps we might be able to share this good news with others as well. We love you and we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.